Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the, world, to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Father, we commit to you now, this time, that we would hear your word, that you would speak to us. Use this to cut quickly through the bone and the marrow, through the to the the, the very core of our soul. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen us for what you have for each one of us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those who haven't been with us, we're working our way through the book of Acts. Although we had a break last week with Mark Futado here, we're coming back. And we, this, we kind of divided up the, this first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas are on. 
but if you remember, they started out, they were sent out from Antioch, and they started in Cyprus, and they worked their way through the island there, and then they sailed northward, and they're in Asia Minor now, and they've been in uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch, and now they're over today in Iconium, working their way eastward. Luke mentions in this particular text that Lystra and Derby were in the province of Lycaonia. In the early 19th century, there developed a real um, skepticism to the authority and the reliability, the historical reliability of the scriptures. And there were a number of scholars who began working to disprove particularly Luke's writings, both his gospel and the book of Acts. One of these scholars, Sir William Ramsey of England, took upon himself to follow in the footsteps of Paul and conduct archaeological digs to try and disprove or discredit what he had written. And one of the things that he wanted to disprove was this claim that these two cities were in the same province. Now you think, really, does it matter? I mean, it's like, it's like saying that, you know, Orlando and Ocala are in the same area or something like that. Well, they are. Some people may think they're far away. You know, it, does it really matter? Well, yeah, it matters. And it mattered to these people because what they were trying to do was discredit God's word. Well, he went, he began digging His effort was to discredit Paul, or Luke rather, and his writings. And what he found was that, indeed, these two cities were in different provinces, according to the modern boundary markers, and had been for the majority of history. But he found that between AD 37 and AD 72, when Luke wrote Acts, that these two cities were actually governed in the same province, not two different provinces. And for just these 35 years, what Luke wrote was factually true. Ramsey went on conducting more and more digs, and he finally conceded at the end of his work, saying that he could find not a single error of historical reliability in the book of Acts. Throughout history, skeptics have questioned the reliability of God's word, some, I think, with genuine interest, others out of a hatred toward God to try and undo anything that he has said and done. And yet with careful studies, when they're conducted, the Word of God stands on its own as true and reliable. We may not understand everything. We may not be able to put all the pieces together. I know that through just my few years of life and study, there have been times where I've really scratched my head. Sometimes I've been given great satisfaction in searching and digging and finding answers. There are things that I don't still understand that I continue to search and to dig but I know that God's word is true, that he has sovereignly preserved it, that we can trust it, and that it's here for our good to tell of who he is and how we must know him. When we look at the second part of this missionary journey, there are three things that we can call tribulations or trials that stand out in this text that I think the church faces in every century. And I think you could even say the church faces these things not, in, not only throughout time, but really even throughout cultures. You can see this happening around the world. The first is division. It's one of Satan's favorite tactics, right? You divide people and you get strife. You can see this if you want to go to the nursery and divide toys. You can see this if you've been watching World Cup soccer. You know, it divides Team, you know, teams are divided, and so you have these two opposing forces, and you can see officials and managers get excited, and for some reason the fans are always the worst, right? And they 
get really divided and there's strife. The same thing can happen in the church. Second thing is vain things. And what I mean by this are things that we put our confidence in, our trust in, that are mere idols. Now, we don't think in terms of idols. But if we look at the words of John Calvin, who said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, we can see that we all battle against putting our confidence, putting our trust in the wrong things. It's a daily battle. Put our hope in in something other than Christ to, to either bring us happiness or peace or sense of security, or whatever. It's an everyday battle. And then the third thing, something that we may struggle to relate to in some terms, of this, is this attack, this full-on physical attack, the stoning that we see happen uh, of Paul. While we may or may not be able to relate to physical attacks, we certainly understand emotional attacks. And both physical and emotional attacks always have a spiritual component when Satan is involved. And... There is a trauma that happens when we're attacked. There are lasting consequences. This happens to us on a personal level. It can happen in a church. And we need to understand that there are, uh, there's a sense that uh, we, it, it, it takes time. It takes the ministry of the Word. It takes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to move beyond these things. You know, we read through this very quickly today. We read through this chapter in one sitting. What did Paul actually go through? I mean, he was stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. There were lasting consequences to this. We need to take that into account. Hopefully we will look that today. As sobering as it is to think about, because none of us wish to go through difficulties, through trials or tribulations. None of us wish those that we love to go through these things. Yet God uses these things to shape us into the image of Christ. He uses these things to make us into who, that who pleases Him. And it says in this text that He uses these things to bring us into the kingdom. So we can take comfort in that. We can take hope in that. Let's begin looking in verse 1, the division that we see. Once again, it's the same pattern we've seen over and over again. They start out, they go into the synagogues. It's the natural inroad as Barnabas and Paul bring the gospel in. And immediately there are believers. Luke writes, there's many believers And then the division erupts. Well, all of this didn't happen in the same day. Again, these are compressed stories, stories that Luke accounts. But, you know, maybe it was weeks, maybe it was months. But eventually the division comes. And notice what the unbelieving Jews do in verse 2. They stir up the Gentiles who would have made up the majority of the population. You see, these Jews who didn't believe weren't satisfied in just saying, yeah, we don't believe. We don't like these two guys that have showed up. They had to get these the pagan Gentiles involved and stir them up. Luke says that he, they, they poison their minds against the brothers. This is a tactic Satan uses to bring division, especially in evangelistic efforts. We, we see this throughout the book of Acts. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see this throughout church history. And I'm sure that most of you have seen this as well. But again, I want us to consider the ramifications of these divisions as they affect believers, especially new believers, or those who have yet to believe. Because it's toxic. It's demoralizing. It's designed to cast doubt. It's designed to undo faith. Satan is a vandal. He knows he's defeated, but he wants to do and try and do as much destruction as he can. And he vandalizes things. And we see this happening through the poisoning of their minds. 
I think of this in particular with missions. I know I seem to always bring missions into the equation, but I can't help but not think of this as I think of our own missionaries and those who are working on the front lines because, as I mentioned, there's a trauma as a result of these kinds of attacks. There is a burden as a result of these kind of attacks. And our missionaries struggle. I can tell you, they struggle with the temptation to think that their work matters. They struggle with the temptation to give up, to just leave it all behind because it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to matter. So let's use this opportunity to remember to pray for those, especially those in missions who carry these burdens. Pray against the divisiveness, but pray also for the strength to face it, to endure it. Christ is not only building His church corporately, but He is building each one of us who are part of His church. This is a beautiful thing to think about. We think Christ as building His church typically in a corporate sense, but that means He's also building each one of you. Shaping you, caring about the details, these trials and tribulations that we look at and that we face. Using these things for your good and for his glory. Well, how do the the apostles react? Do they leave town? No, they actually double down their efforts. They, verse 3 says, they invest more of their energy, more of their time. They stay there for a while, for a long time, Luke writes. They actually were in Iconium longer than in any other area on this trip. This is where they spent the most of their time. And it says they spoke boldly for the Lord, and the Lord in turn strengthened them for the task by bearing witness to the word of His grace and granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I've mentioned it already. The book of Acts is filled with these compressed, these stories of compressed amounts of time. I mean, we read these in one sitting and we feel like everything happened in mere moments, but we have to remember that, I mean, this first missionary journey was two to three years long. So this was a long period of time. The work of Christ's church often involves slow, heavy lifting. Or the way someone else has said, um, the, the majority of Christ's workers are faithful plotters. I think most of us, and I can say I'm in this camp, you know, when we think of we want to make a difference for God, we want to do something sensational, something outstanding, something that would be written in history books. And I don't think that's an, a bad notion or a desire. But the reality is that through the history of the church, who God uses the most and the most often are not the people who, whose names will be written in history books, but people who faithfully plotted. People, people who took the gifts and the resources God gave them and ministered in their time and in their context. We do well to remember 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Another scripture, you know, the day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to the Lord. So we don't always know what God is doing, and we look at divisiveness in this particular setting. We're not sure why God allows this. We may look at it in our own lives and not sure why, but we can trust the God who is at work. The divisiveness in verses 5 to 7 escalates to the point that Paul and Barnabas are threatened. They realize, they hear about it, and they actually leave. They depart. Now, we see times in the book of Acts where they both face persecution. They stand up in the face of persecution, and at times when they flee it. And I think that there is great wisdom that's required to know what to do when. When is it appropriate to shake the dust off of our feet and move on? 
There's not a formula for this, but I believe it is by the guidance of God's Spirit to know when it is time to move on. And in this case, Paul and Barnabas following the leading of the Spirit, they move on. But they don't move on discouraged, knowing that this divisiveness is not the end. Paul in another place wrote that in some cases, you know, he planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I think he could have easily, and it wouldn't have changed the meaning of that at all, to add about five more names or more in there of people who watered along the way. And some of us have those experiences where you plant a seed and someone else comes along and waters and someone else comes along and waters and someone else comes along and waters. And we may not even get to see the harvest. But we trust God who is, he's the gardener and he does the work and he will build his church. Divisiveness is not the death blow. Christ is sovereignly reigning to build his church. So after a considerable amount of time, Paul and Barnabas move on to Lystra and Derbe and surrounding country. And in this next section, verses 8 to 18, we look at these vain things, things that we're tempted to put our hope in other than God. And he begins this with a story that, that probably sounds familiar to most of us. If you think back to Acts 3, Peter did a healing that was very similar to this. He healed a man who was born crippled. And the parallels are striking between these two accounts. And I think what Luke is doing, two things. One is he's showing this unity in the kingdom work of what God is doing. But I think more importantly, he is adding validity or confirming the call in the ministry of Paul. You know, we look back at Paul and we remember he wrote so many epistles and letters and he was a stalwart of the faith. But at this point in church history, there were a lot of people who still doubted what he was up to because of who he had been before his conversion. And so I think what's one of the reasons for Luke tying these two stories together. Notice the parallels. If you look in verse 8, both men were crippled from birth. I'm relying on your memory from, verse, from, uh, from chapter 3, rather, when Peter healed. But both men were crippled from birth. In other words, everyone in the community would have known who these men were. These were adult men who had been crippled for decades. Probably both made their living by begging. Everybody knew who they were. This was not some kind of sleight of hand magic trick that they were healed. Verse 9, both men possessed faith to be healed, faith that is a gift from God. And both Peter and Paul had the discernment of the Holy Spirit to recognize that gift. Both Peter and Paul looked intently at the men um, that they healed in verse 9. Peter and Paul both gave a command to stand up. It's kind of an audacious command to say, stand up to men who had been crippled from birth. And in verse 10, we see that this man, just like the one in chapter 3, sprang up and began to walk. In other words, it was clearly miraculous. I, I sit on my leg too long, it goes to sleep, and it takes me 60 seconds to get up and walk. These were men who had never even had the structure in their bones or the muscles and the ligaments to be able to walk. And they miraculously, the text says, sprang up. They jumped up. They leapt up. It was miraculous. And so the reaction then is similar in one way and different in another. It's similar in that the people were all in awe, just like they were in chapter 3. But in chapter 3, it led to them giving glory to God. And in here, we see something different happen. What happens here is that they translate it through their own culture. They translate it in a, in a vain manner. Rather than seeing this as a miracle of the Creator God, they interpreted this through their idol worship. 
In verse 11, the crowd responds. It says in their native dialect, a dialect that Paul and Barnabas would not have understood. They wouldn't have known what these people were saying. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, there's a good reason why they reacted this way. There was a well-known legend in the area that Zeus and Hermes had come in the likeness of men and they had gone from house to house seeking hospitality and had been turned away by home after home. And it wasn't until they got to the home of an elderly couple that they were taken in and shown hospitality. And so they took this couple up to the mountaintop and they sent a flood and destroyed every home in the village. They then rebuilt their home as a mansion with a solid gold roof. It's a legend, remember this. With a solid gold roof. And so these people knew this story. And they didn't want to make the same mistake. And so they sought to honor Paul and Barnabas as gods with their own form of worship. Now we hear this and we think, okay, we're not tempted to do this. We don't think in those terms. We don't think in terms of pagan gods doing this. But I think that we have our own gods that we look to. We have our own things. Our culture has its things. One example is science. Science is a good thing. Science is not a bad thing. I'm not beating up on science. But science can be used as a weapon and has been used as a weapon if you think of the attempts to undo the resurrection of Christ. Think of how many explanations have been attempted to try and explain away the miraculous resurrection of Christ or the creation of the universe or even our own sin being nothing more than chemicals reacting and colliding because we just evolved out of primordial soup. And so whether it's the serial killer or the adulterer or the swindler, the tax person stealing from taxes or the one who, whatever it is, we just say, oh, that's the way he is. That's the way she is. We can be just as easily blinded by our own gods. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, it's the same thing we need to do when we are when, when people use these tactics to argue against the God of the Bible, Paul and Barnabas become apologists. They defend the faith. And if you look, you know, when we got to the beginning of chapter 14, we saw the pattern that they went to the synagogue. But when they got to Lystra and Derby, we don't see that pattern continue. In other words, there was no synagogue here. These people were steeped in their pagan religion. So they had not come to understand the God of the Bible the God that would have come through the synagogue teaching. There wasn't no foundation that could be laid. And so Paul and Barnabas began from a different standpoint here. First, they had to realize what they were doing. Remember, the language that they reacted in was their own native dialect of Lyaconian. But once they did realize this, verse 14 says that they began to tear their clothing, which was a sign of protest. And they said, we are men just like you. They began explaining the good news. And then they called them to turn from these feigned things to a living God who made everything. And they point to God as not only the one who created everything, but as the one who sustains everything, providing rain from heaven, verse 17, fruitful seasons, satisfaction with food and gladness. And although Luke doesn't, this is just a snapshot that he gives us and he doesn't, go on to, to say that they explain the gospel, we can be certain, I can say with, and I, I say this carefully to say that I can say this with certainty, I know they went on and explained the work of Christ because they did this everywhere they went. It was their whole purpose in going. 
So even though it's not accounted here, but you can see how they started. They came from a different framework than what they did when they went to the synagogue. They understood the context that they were in, and they became defenders of the faith. And they preached the gospel of Christ, calling men to turn from vain things. And this invited a full-on attack from Jews in the neighboring regions. The third thing, verses 19 to 23, we see this. It's one thing to face opposition from the people that are in front of you. You say something, they find it offensive, and they oppose you. But here, it's, it's, it's something else when people travel quite a distance to come after you, and in fact, to come to kill you. But that's exactly what happened. Jews came from both Antioch and Iconium, and they traveled this great distance. And then they persuade the crowds to stone and to kill Paul. Paul would later write in a, in, in, in a, a letter to the churches in Galatia. By the way, all of this is happening in the region of Galatia, the province of Lycaonia, but the region of Galatia. So this letter would one day come to this church here. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. No doubt, scars were left from this encounter. And while Paul would count it an honor to suffer for Christ, this does not diminish what he endured in this event. Stones thrown at him. People filled with enough hatred and rage to do such. No doubt vile words spoken, vulgarities, anger, curse words, stones, hitting, bruising, cutting, crushing, unconsciousness, blackness. They thought he was dead and they dragged his body out and they tossed it like a piece of trash. But God preserved Paul. He didn't die. The disciples gathered around him. They began ministering to him, no doubt praying for him. And he rose up, and he went back to the city. He went back to the city. And then he and Barnabas gather together, and they go back to Iconium and Antioch, where they've planted these other churches. But these are the cities where the Jews came that talked everybody into killing him. They went to the very place that the threat was coming from. Four things we see that Paul does on his return, really quick. Strengthens the disciples, encourages them to continue in the faith, teaches them of the tribulations that they must face, and appointing elders in each church. Those are the four things that he comes back to do on the second round through these churches. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Interesting, some of these disciples, one of them at least, Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. God was raising up even the second generation of leaders in the church. And Gaius, who we'll see in Acts 20, he was from Derby. So God was sovereignly working through all of this. He encouraged them to continue in the faith. The word for encourage is also translated in some places to exhort. In other words, it was a, this was more than just mere sentiment. This was more than just a pep talk. There's no doubt that his hearers felt the weight of his words as they looked upon him and saw the very scars that he bore on his body from this stoning. And third, teaching them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations can take... Uh, tribulations, it, it's, that's a big word. It's probably a word we only use in the church um, but I think it's an important word to understand. It can take many different forms. Trials, difficulties that we have to, to endure. 
There will be divisiveness that destroys peace in the church, maybe in our families. There will be vain things that distract us from the truth that we're tempted to put confidence in that we shouldn't. There will be full-on attacks that rob us of the very desire to carry on. And we could add to this list of trials and tribulations. You could add personal illustrations, I'm sure, to these things. But note that these are a part, an integral part of our entering the kingdom. Who wants to hear that? (laughs) Who wants to be called to a kingdom of which the process of entering is enduring trials and tribulations? We've talked about the now and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. The fact that we're justified now, but we're not yet glorified. The fact that we're righteous before God in Christ, but we still live in sinful bodies. The fact that our redemption is purchased, but we still live with the weight of being in a sinful, fallen world. But yet God is using all of these things, both in this now and not yet reality, to purify for himself a spotless bride. And this quote... I mentioned once already, for those who've read Narnia, you recognize it. Mr. Beaver, when he's asked about Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the book, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. Know today that God is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. His mercy is never ending. And His grace that has led us safe thus far is the grace that will carry us home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the mercy in Christ that even when we think of these tribulations that we have faced, that we are facing, and that we will face, that it's not a safe kingdom, Lord, but it's a good kingdom because it's reigned by a good King. And Lord, you are good and we thank you for that. We praise you for that. Help us to believe it, to remember it, to rest in it when life doesn't make sense. Give us a deep rest, a peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.